If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Philippians. We're continuing our series in Philippians called Risk Everything. Risk Everything. The big idea with this series is to invite you to invest in the kingdom, to invite you to see how Jesus risked everything for you. That's the center of Philippians is chapter two. We're going to start on that next week where he gave up his very life for us. And so we're called to, in return, spend our lives for others because Jesus has spent his life for us. So the idea is that we would risk everything that we would invest in the gospel. This week, we're going to be finishing chapter one, verses 27 through 30. And we're calling it this week, live as gospel citizens, live as gospel citizens. Now, when we read the English text, you're not going to see the word citizen in most of your English translations. The main ones a lot of you use are the NIV and the ESV. It's not in either one of those, Uh, but it's there in the Greek. The Greek word for citizen can also be translated as an ambassador or a representative. So the idea is that you would represent your true identity. And we live in a time where we have many competing identities pulling on us, inviting us to trust in something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and me, we're constantly being told to be citizens of some other tribe, to take pride in our desires, or to take pride in our political affiliation, or to take pride in our job or our education or other things. And here, Paul's commanding the Philippians, who had a unique position as Roman citizens, right? Philippi was a Roman colony, so he's, he's playing on a gift they had in the temporal sense. And he's saying, I want you, you who have the great benefit of Roman citizenship, I want you to truly be citizens of heaven, citizens of Jesus. Now, to start off with a little lighthearted fare, I wanted to poke fun at us Texans. Yes, I'm a Texan. I was born here, and I'm, of course, very proud of it. I know many of you were born here as well, and those of you that weren't, you got here as fast as you could, right? Yes, that's what we like to say. My cousin actually is in a band called the Austin Lounge Lizards. It's a great bluegrass parody band, and they've got a song called One More Stupid Song About Texas. So I want to read this to you to kind of get your mind going on the way that we can sometimes be a citizen or an ambassador or a representative of a false identity or maybe a secondary silly identity. Um, I know that's sacrilegious even to say such things about Texas, but here we go. Here's Here's the lyrics of the song. Our accents are the drolliest, our howdies are the olliest, our Lone Star flag's the waviest, our fried steak's the cream graviest, our sausage is the smokiest, our neighbors are the oakiest. Let's sing another stupid Texas song. We are so darn proud to be from Texas. Yahoo. Even of our pride, we're proud, and we're proud of that pride too. Our pride about our home state is the proudest pride indeed. And it goes on and on and on. There's a lot more to the song. You can look them up. The Austin Lounge Lizards, they're a funny band, great bluegrass music, and they like to make you laugh. But It's just a silly example of how we can take pride in a citizenship that is other than what is ultimate, right? And I joke, I am proud to be Texan. I love that I grew up in Texas, right? I love guacamole. I love chicken fried steak. I love all those things. But I have a greater love for a God who gave himself for me. And that anchors my ultimate identity. Everything else in this world is shaky. 
Everything else in this world is temporary. But what Jesus has done for us is eternal. That is what secures us. That is what is going to enable us to face real difficulty in life. So let's read the text. Again, the actual word citizen is not here, but it appears in the Greek in the first verse. They talk about manner of life is where the Greek word is translated. So verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Paul is writing from prison. You think things are bad for you? You think you face opposition when it comes to following Jesus? Paul was in prison, possibly about to face death, right? He didn't know which way it was going to go. And he said, hey, take heart as you look at me. Take heart, next chapter, as you look at Christ and live worthy of what he has given you. I want to pray for our text. Before I pray, I just want to clarify one thing. This concept of being worthy, it doesn't mean we earn worth. Worth in the Christian faith is a free gift given to us by Jesus. We were all sinners that had drifted from God. We have gone our own way, but Jesus came after us on a rescue mission. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and he gives us that as a gift. And so you're given the worth of Christ if you trust in him. If you believe in Jesus, God sees you as beautiful, as delightful, as worthy. And then Paul says here, live it out. Live as if you really believe it. Live out that worthiness that God has already granted to you. Let me pray for us and ask God to help us to believe this and to live this. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We read it because we know it's from you, and we pray that you would help us to receive it, to trust you, to believe what you have to say to us. We pray that it would shape us, that we would live in a new way. And God, we pray that you would lead us to walk with you faithfully. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know if I've got any deacons in the room or anybody on staff, but if we could turn down the volume outside just a little bit. I'm hearing an echo in my ear just through the door and it's slightly driving me crazy. Thank you, Chris. Um, maybe people are on the porch. Maybe they can just scoot closer to the TV. I don't know. I don't know the, I don't know the sound situation out there. So as we look at the text again, I just want to remind you, We don't become worthy of the gospel and earn it. We're given worth by God in the gospel. And then we live out that worth, right? So Jesus gives you sonship. He makes you his daughter. He makes you his child. He grants you citizenship in his kingdom. And then he says, now live like it. Now live out that worth that I've already given to you. This phrase is going to come up later in Philippians. It says, only live up to what we have already attained in Christ. That's Christianity. Every other religion says, live up to these standards, and then maybe you'll be worthy of God. 
That's a completely different system. We just have to be clear of that before we move on because this text is going to put a lot of demands on us. So we need to make sure we've got the gospel foundation laid, right? God has given you everything in Christ. Now do these hard things, okay? So here are three ways that we would live as gospel citizens. Three ways we would strive in unity, strive in unity. Second one is don't be intimidated. I think in the text he said, don't be frightened. I think in the NIV it says, don't be terrified. Don't be intimidated. The third thing is that we would suffer for Christ. So three commands, three heavy commands. Strive in unity. Don't be intimidated. Suffer for Christ. And this is all living out that citizenship. What does it look like to belong to the gospel, to be in God's family? This theme is going to come up again in Philippians 3.20. So a cross-reference for the citizenship thing is Philippians 3.20. I'll read that real quick, and then we'll move on to our text. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You belong to heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. You're an ambassador of heaven. You're a representative of heaven. Another way to translate this word, it's politius. I can't say the Greek, sorry. Politius they, okay? So it's got the the form, the Greek form there is uh, polis for city. Politics is another way we might say that. So it's like you're a politician of heaven, right? And you're all like, ew, gross, politicians. They're disgusting. Um, Switchfoot has a great song about that as well. But we are representatives of the priorities and the grace of Jesus. He's given you all this grace. Now represent that grace to others. Okay, so the first thing is we would strive in unity. Strive in unity. He says in verse 27, only let your manner of life, that's the Greek word citizenship, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy is kind of weight, right? God's given you this weight. Now let's swing that weight around, right? Like share that weight in the world that he's given you. Share that worth, the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. This is what Paul wants to hear of the Philippians. It's what he wants to hear of us. It's what Jesus wants to hear of us as well, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm. That's kind of a fighting stance, okay? We saw this in Jude, contending for the gospel, not fighting like punching people in the face, but fighting to believe, fighting to share the truth, fighting to obey the purity that God calls us to, living according to his moral demands, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So one mind, one spirit, striving side by side. There's a lot of unity words here. He's piling on these terms. These are all pointing to unity, and this unity forms around the gospel, right? So there's a standing firm, there's this striving, there's this fighting, this contending, pressing forward, but it's unified. And again, this is a very divided time in our history. We're pulled in a lot of different directions. The gospel allows you to have culture. It allows you to have preferences. It's okay for me to love being from Texas, and it's okay for you to love being from up north and love being from some other country, right? It's good and beautiful that we have different cultural backgrounds. We like different foods. We like different music. That kind of diversity is good and beautiful. And that kind of diversity can only be unified around the centrality of the gospel, The other way to look at it is this. If we're unified around the gospel, and that's the only thing that really, really, really matters, 
that actually frees us up to be more diverse, right? That frees us up to be the kind of church that pulls people from every different direction and celebrates different cultures because we're clear on these things really matter and then these other things, not so much, right? They're just preferences. There are some things that are different that are really not in either category, things that really matter, the gospel, the demands that Jesus makes on us, things that don't matter so much, our preferences. And then there are tactics where we as a local church say, we're going to organize in this way to share the gospel in a unified way, right? So kind of three different distinctions that we would make there. We've got to be unified around the gospel and then volunteer together and say, okay, we're also going to be unified in the fact that we're going to actually have our service at 11, right? Like, like that's tactical, practical unity as well. So there are some of those issues also. So we strive forward in unity. And a favorite illustration I have of this is from Greek warfare. A lot of you military guys know more about this than I do, but the phalanx, raise your hand if you've heard of the Greek phalanx. Am I saying that right? Phalanx? Phalanx. Thank you. Okay. Phalanx. So You've got these Greek soldiers, and they have the giant shields, and they all get side by side, and then they advance with these super long spears, which also have a funny name I can't remember. So super long spears, big shields, they're side by side, and they're unified. And this revolutionized warfare. They they had a big impact, a lot of victories because of their striving side by side, because of their unity. And there are two sides to this, Right? Their unity helped them to defend each other as their shields protected. You know, they all lined up and that gave them a a more even protection of the unit. But also they were moving forward. They didn't just stand there with their shields, right? They had the spears and they, they moved forward. They strived together in unity. So we have unity in the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. Jesus gave himself for you. That's your only hope. You're saved by what Jesus has done. You're not saved by your education. You're not saved by the social group that you belong to. You're not saved by your preferences or your culture. You're saved by Jesus. We also then have unity around the demands that Jesus places on us. Jesus places very clear demands. Um, Pretty clearly in the New Testament, repeats the Ten Commandments and the basic morality of the Old Testament, right? Sexual purity, honesty, respecting authority, worshiping God, having only one, you know, these basics of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. There's a a core morality that Jesus calls us to. And so he gives us salvation, and then he calls us to obey him. We can all agree on that. That's a central core, even though we might have different preferences and cultures. And so we're going to strive, we're going to move forward by agreeing on the gospel and then sharing that gospel with other people. We're going to move forward. We're not going to get caught up in these other fights about, oh, we've got to be devoted to this style or this culture. No, those are secondary things. We're going to unify unify around the gospel, unify around the scriptures and how Jesus has revealed himself. Paul gives us some striving language and a cross-reference in Ephesians 6. It's a famous warfare passage. And again, this is not a physical warfare. We don't punch people to get them to follow Jesus, right? We speak the words of Jesus, and we serve people in love. That's how people follow Jesus. That's what the church is about. And so Paul uses this warfare language again in Ephesians 6, and he says, Be strong in the Lord, in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God. And what is the full armor of God? He's going to repeat in a lot of different ways a basic restatement of the gospel. Justification. God makes you right. He's forgiven you. 
salvation, wholeness. He heals you, right? The gospel, the good news. He's going to restate this in different ways. He's going to say, basically, you were putting on the gospel. So part of your warfare is to put it on. So, so first application point is, have you put it on yourself? Have you strapped on the armor of Jesus's salvation? Have you personally made a decision to trust in Jesus that he's forgiven your sins? Or are you still thinking that you can clean yourself up and earn the worth and the favor of God? Again, that, that's other religions. That's not Christianity. Christianity stands uniquely separate from every other religion in the world. And it says, God gave the worth to you. Do you trust him? He saved you. He delights in you. He sent Jesus for you. Do you trust that? If you're trusting in him, if you're placing your faith in Jesus, that's strapping that on. And there's a a repeated kind of daily mental process we go through as believers. Of Every morning we get up and go, you know what? Jesus is still there for me. It's this ongoing process of like, yes, once you're saved, you're always saved, but you got to keep strapping it on. You got to keep saying, yes, Jesus, you're still my only hope. You get up every morning, you strap on your armor of salvation, of trusting the basics of the gospel that Jesus died for you and he was raised for you. Paul goes on then also throughout this Ephesians 6 warfare passage, and he talks about not only the armor of God, the protection of Jesus' salvation, but he talks about praying. Pray, 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 pray. He says to to pray. Sometimes I think about prayer along with worship as feeling the gospel, right? I think of that, you know, the first one is, do I believe the facts of the gospel? Do I trust the gospel for myself? Jesus died for me. I accept your salvation, Jesus. I trust you. But we've also got to feel the gospel. We've got to feel it. Like when you're having a hard time, you've got to run to Jesus in prayer. Do you do that? Do you see Jesus as your only hope and, and you talk to him and you seek him out and you spend time with him in prayer? Worship is also another reflection of that, praising him for his goodness. Are you bending your affections towards the truth of the gospel? That's a part of our warfare. And then finally, the, the only offensive weapon really in the Ephesians 6 passage of, of striving and doing warfare for the gospel is that you would wield the sword of the Spirit. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So offensively, right? It's not just defensive. We don't just put up our shields and hide from the world, but we're, we're moving forward. And again, it's not physical warfare. We're not hurting people to get them to trust in Jesus. The sword, the offensive weapon, is the Word of God. And let me just share something from our cultural moment. I have a temperament whereby I always want to smooth over conflict, Right? That's how God's wired me. If I'm ever in like a a board of directors with you, I'm going to be the one that's going to bring harmony to the board. I'm going to be the one that's going to like translate, well, this guy said this and that person said that and, and we can meet in the middle, right? Like that's just the way God's wired me. And as a result of that wiring, I've had a passion my whole life. I've been walking with Jesus for 30 years to help non-believers see the reasonableness and the sweetness of the gospel, to defend the gospel in simple ways that that reduces the offense of the gospel, right? I still think that's a good project to be involved in. Sometimes we call that apologetics, kind of giving reasons that our faith makes sense. And I think Christians should continue to pursue that. We should continue to try to make the gospel as not offensive as possible, right? By listening to people, by understanding them, by speaking in a way they understand, by being kind and gracious. 
but listen to me, guys. We're in a cultural moment where it's getting harder and harder to speak truth without offending people. And we've got to recognize that sometimes we just have to speak the truth. And I'm, I'm preaching it myself, right? But because I lead this church, probably a lot of you follow my way, right? Let's not be offensive. Let's not upset people. We've got to speak the truth. Yes, try to not be offensive. I'm not saying let's change our tactic and be as offensive as possible, right? Like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we've got to acknowledge the culture is squeezing us in a direction more and more where it's like anything you say is going to offend me. And we can't just shut up and not say anything. We must speak. We must strive side by side in unity. This is what God's word says. And I believe God is worth trusting. He gave himself for me in Jesus. He loves me. He delights me. I believe in grace. I believe in the kindness and the sweetness of God. But, but we can't let that keep us from speaking the truth. We, we've got to speak the truth. Um, what are some ways to do this? Well, continue to practice sharing the truth in real conversations with your neighbors, right? Kind, patient, listening conversations, but speak the truth. I also want to invite you to speak the truth through the organized ministries of our church, right? There's, there's a kind of global unity we have with all other Christians where we all believe in Jesus and we all obey Jesus, and that's kind of a global unity. But we want to invite you into a tactical practical local unity with us at Grace Bible Church. This is a local church that meets weekly here in this building and scattered in homes throughout the city. We want to invite you to serve on the ministry teams of our church. Um, now that the pandemic is ending, you know, we don't want to say it's all over yet, but it's, it's getting better. More and more people are coming back to church and we're so excited. We're so glad to have you here. Um, because we're a 15-year-old church, we can have the illusion of being well-established. God's blessed us in being able to make our budget last year. We still have staff members. We haven't like had to close down and fire people, but we have lost tons of volunteers, right? We are rebuilding, and I believe God will help us to move forward. I just want to invite you into that process. Part of that process of us move forward, moving forward and rebuilding is you guys actually signing up for the service ministries of the church striving side by side with us to share the gospel through our kids ministry, by joining our welcome team, by being the slide person that puts the words up on the screen, right? By helping with sound. All of, all of these ministries we do together to strive in unity to share the gospel with our city. So I invite you to take steps of actually joining, serving on one of those teams. Really helpful. Also invite you to start your own small groups, join an existing small group, Start a three-by-five group, which is just three people doing life together, praying for each other, reading the scriptures together. I want to invite you to take these next steps so that we can strive in unity, sharing the truth, the basic truths of the gospel. All right, second point, don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by opponents of the gospel. Don't be intimidated by other gospels. There are other uh, false gospels, good news out there that's not really good, that will only enslave you. One of the common ones today in our culture is just look inside your own heart and follow your own desires. That one is heating up big time. Look inside yourself, form your identity. You're going to be a citizen of your own heart's desires. And we're told that that will save us. It, it will not save you. There's a, there's a selfish joy that we can have where we just do whatever we want to, right? Where you just kind of indulge yourself and, and for a little while that can be fun. 
but it ends badly. That, that won't continue to provide real and lasting joy for you. If you trust in Jesus, that's a deeper, eternal joy, which will train you then to give to other people. And so don't be intimidated by false gospels. Verse 28 says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He's saying here to not be frightened. Uh, Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Don't be scared. You will have opponents. People will tell you you're crazy for trusting Jesus. Just know that and be ready for that. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. And here's the thing. He's saying that will continue to extend the gospel. Even as you don't allow yourself to be intimidated and you continue to trust Jesus and to share Jesus with others, that's going to be a sign, it says, of of their destruction and your salvation. Your trust, your fortitude in Jesus is a sign of the gospel. That actually is going to continue to communicate the gospel to others. Now, I want to be clear. I mentioned this last week. Courage doesn't mean you never feel fear at all. Courage is a process in the Christian faith by which you look at your fear and you say, you know what? That is scary, but Jesus is better. So I'm going to keep walking forward. Even though this is intimidating, even though this is a threatening, I'm going to look at Jesus and say, Jesus gave himself for me, so I'm going to trust him and I'm going to keep moving forward, right? I grabbed a picture of uh, some characters from a detective show that I watch sometimes. This is Sean and Gus. These guys are kind of like, uh, well, they're detectives. I don't want to go on the, into the details. But anyway, ridiculous show. And every episode, something scary happens, and they scream like little girls. That's basically what happens. But then they keep moving forward, and they help to solve the crime, right? I, I want to assure you that some of you think, if I'm ever afraid of anything, that I'm not qualified, Right? I'm not obeying this verse. What I want you to understand is what Paul is saying here is is don't continue to be frightened. Don't continue to be afraid. People are going to push back on you. They're going to tell you you're stupid, bad, and ugly for loving Jesus. And you say, wow, that's scary. Wow, that hurts. Wow, that does frighten me. I might lose my job. I might lose this relationship. But you look back at the cross and you say, Jesus gave himself for me. That's where Paul's taking us next week in chapter 2. Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus did for you. That's where you will draw the power to not continue to be intimidated, to not continue to be frightened. That's courage is saying, yeah, I'm scared, but Jesus is worth it. I'm going to follow him anyway. I'm going to keep obeying him. I'm going to keep doing what he says. So this is a a process. Gospel citizens may have real fears. We may have real worries, but we look back to Jesus, and that enables us to keep moving forward, to not be intimidated by other gospels, by false ways of salvation. I think a parallel for this that's helpful is being thirsty, being spiritually thirsty. John 4 and John 7 talks about being satisfied in Jesus so that we never thirst again. But here's how that works. You're thirsty, you go to Jesus, he satisfies you. You're thirsty, you go to Jesus, he satisfies you. It's the same thing with being frightened. I feel afraid, Jesus. You go to Jesus, he gives you courage. You move, you move forward. It's an ongoing process in our life. And as you grow braver, chances are you're going to face scarier and scarier opponents. Don't give up. Continue to trust him. Do not be intimidated 
and that will be a sign for the gospel. Okay, the last point is that we would suffer for Christ. This is probably the hardest point, suffer for Christ. This is part of what it means to represent the gospel, to represent Jesus, our Savior who suffered for us. If we're following in his stead, we're going to suffer for others. Not in the same salvific sense that Jesus suffers for us. That's an ultimate, permanent salvation. His suffering purchased our life, gives us freedom, sets us free from sin and death. But as we suffer along with him, we're going to deliver that good news to others. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul's in prison, maybe about to die. He's saying, you see me suffering. Next week, chapter 2, he's going to say, you see how Christ suffered. And we also get to follow in their footsteps. We get to suffer also. It's been granted to you not just to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Number one, the suffering is for Christ. We're not just suffering so that we can get ahead, right? Some of you are, are willing to do that. I know I've, I've suffered for certain goals in my life, right? And that's not always bad, right? You uh, set a fitness goal and you suffer to achieve that fitness goal, right? Or you set a financial goal and you might suffer or withhold things from yourself to get to a financial goal. That's totally reasonable, but this is a kind of ultimate goal. You're suffering for Christ to extend Jesus with the world, right? It's not how Christ saved us. We're not saving people. We're sharing that salvation with the world. We're saying, look at Jesus. And through our suffering, other people will see Jesus as well. But here's a really crazy thing. He says it has been granted to you. That's the Greek word charis. Uh, It's grace. It has been graced to you. This is grace. This is a gift that you would get to suffer. That doesn't make sense to us, right? That just sounds crazy. That sounds insane. I grabbed a picture of someone giving a birthday gift or a Christmas gift to someone else. This, this is a uniquely bizarre Christian trait that we would begin to see our suffering as a grace from God. Now, we want to be careful. Christians don't want to jump off the deep end and say, immediately, every time a bad thing happen, happens in our life, like, this is great. I love suffering, right? That's just weird, Okay. That's not what you're supposed to do. Sometimes Christians get this confused. We have to live in both worlds. We say suffering is a result of sin and evil and the fall. And God is so big, he can turn that for his glory. He proved that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so last week we saw for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, and the life I live now is fruitful labor. You are still on assignment for Jesus. This life you live, which is still in a world of suffering and death, it won't be done until heaven. This life of suffering and death is fruitful labor for Jesus. That's what he said in 121 and 22. So to live as Christ, to die as gain, your life should be fruitful labor. It's a gift that he's given you to suffer for others. So to maintain sanity, you say suffering is bad. It's not where God is ultimately heading. It hurts. You pray that God would relieve your suffering. You run to him with your pain. You have freedom to ask him for anything. And then you also say, but I see that you can use suffering for a greater good. 
Christians, we always want to jump off one side or the other, right? We want to just jump to the kind of emotionally weird, I love suffering, suffering is great, right? That's what's sometimes called the poverty gospel. God's whole purpose in my life is for me to be miserable, right? But there's also the prosperity gospel. God's whole purpose is for me to always be happy all the time, and if I just have enough faith, I'll be rich and happy. Well, no, the the world we live in is broken, and we're going to experience suffering, and we're headed to prosperity and perfection, and every tear will be wiped away. But while we're here, he's got us on assignment. And the goal is not that we pursue suffering or pursue prosperity full-time, but that we pursue Jesus. And as we pursue Jesus, he will use us to extend his goodness in the world. Paul will say later he's learned the secret of contentment. Whether he's got a lot or got a little, Christ is the secret either way. Christ is his ultimate satisfaction. So that when you're in times of blessing, you can say, God, thanks for these blessings, but these blessings are not ultimate. You are ultimate. And when you have little, you can say, God, I really wish I could have more, or I really wish this cancer could be healed, or I really wish this pain could be fixed, but I trust that you are ultimate. So here's how we might apply this. I would ask you to make a list of your sufferings. Make a list of your sufferings and just state how they're painful and they hurt and you want them to go go away and ask God to free you from those sufferings. And then also say, but God, I trust that you can use these sufferings for your glory. Will you show me ways that I can use them to extend your grace, that I can proclaim the message of who you are through these sufferings? We live in a world where both things are true. And to be healthy is, is to admit that. List your sufferings. List your big ones and your small ones. Some of you feel, feel guilty for listing your small ones, right? You think like, oh, I get annoyed that I have to wait in line at the bank. It's okay. You can put that on the list, right? My wife jokes that she says she's made for heaven. Whenever anything breaks, it frustrates her because she wants the world to be perfect and orderly, right? And we joke about that. We're like, yeah, that's actually what we're headed for. We're headed for a future where everything works. Put that on the list. Your big sufferings, put that on the list. Put everything on the list. Just spend some time writing down, some time with a journal, a notepad, Saying, God, these are the things that are hurting me. These are the little things that bug me. These are the big things that bug me. And I confess that ultimately in the future, the world's not going to be broken anymore. Romans 8 has clarified there will be no more groaning. Everything will be fixed. That's where we're headed. The end of the book, Revelation 21, 22, we know he's going to wipe away every tear. We know that's where we're headed and declare that, yeah, this is a result of sin. It's not always a result of, of your specific sin, but you, know, you can trace it all back to Adam and Eve. It all started somewhere. It's a result of brokenness. Someone else's sin, maybe your sin, maybe somebody else's sin. But the broken, painful things in this world are truly broken. Name that. Say it. But then say, God, show me how you can use it for your glory. Will you show me how you can use suffering for the extension of the gospel? Okay, we'll wrap up here. Uh, I wanted to remind us as we think about living as gospel citizens, the, the phrasing that he said is worthy. And just again, come back to this. You're not uh, living up to the worth in the sense of earning it, but you're living worthy lives in the sense of sharing the worth that Jesus has already given to you. And I thought one of the ways that's really helpful for us to reframe this is to move from the kind of citizenship state concept, right? I'm a representative of my citizenship in heaven 
to the more relational concept of family. That's another way that this idea of identity is talked about in the Bible. And so one of my favorite illustrations of this is years ago during the John F. Kennedy administration, he had a little kid, right? John John Kennedy was four years old. And it's this beautiful illustration of you've got this four-year-old kid running around the White House. He's running past armed guards, right? He's running past heads of state. He's running past uh, cabinet members. And he runs into the inner sanctum, the Oval Office, the center of uh, power for the most powerful man in the world. And he runs and jumps in his lap. I want you to see that that's the kind of relationship that you have with your heavenly Father. Hebrews says, because of the rich mercy he has for us, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. And so I want to leave you with that picture that you're a citizen of the gospel, and that means even more than just belonging to this country we call heaven, it means you're in the family of God himself. He has adopted you and made you his child. Don't hold back, but run to him. As you seek to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, that life is going to include daily running to Jesus and trusting him, coming to him for help, for more grace, as you then live out that grace and give that grace to other people. I've been reading a book lately that I would recommend by Dane Ortland. The book is called Gentle and Lowly. And one of the major themes of the book is how we should always run to Jesus how he's inviting us to come to himself. I was talking about this with my son a little bit this weekend. There's a really helpful uh, little section in the book that talks about how we hesitate to run to Jesus with our need. There's something about us as followers of Jesus sometimes that wants to be proper and kind of clean ourselves up before we come to Jesus. And he's addressing that in this quote. So here's a quote from the book. He says, Is it not presumptuous audacity to draw on the mercy of Christ in an unfiltered way? Shouldn't we be measured and reasonable, careful not to pull too much on him? You ever feel that in your heart? I think I saw that lived out this week. I got to be with my my grandchild. And there's this sweet thing that I watched, right? It's easier when you're a grandparent. Everything's easier when you're a grandparent. My daughter, my grown daughter, is is making a meal, and the one-year-old is like pulling on her leg, right? (laughs) She's just pulling on her and pulling on her. And and to me, it's delightful because I'm grandpa, right? If you're mom, it gets a little old. (laughs) But to me, I'm like, oh, it's delightful. She just wants to be with her mommy. Mommy is her favorite, you know? Granddad just won't do. She's got to have mommy. She's pulling on her mommy, pulling on her leg, pulling on her, and My daughter was very sweet and patient, but it it got me thinking how as we grow up, we learn not to pull on people like that, right? That's kind of part of growing up. We learn not to be so presumptuous, not to grab hold of people and say, I need you, I need you, and pull on them and pull on them. And the problem is we can carry that into our relationship with God. What Ortland is saying is that should not be the parameters of your relationship with Jesus. He wants you to pull on him. He wants you to run to him. Every time you need him, go and grab hold of him and pull on him. Let me, let me read the quote again. He says, shouldn't we be measured and reasonable, careful not to pull too much on him? He goes on and says, would a father with a suffocating child want his child to draw on the oxygen tank in a measured 
and reasonable way? It makes no sense. He's saying, you're suffocating. Breathe deeply. I've got oxygen for you. Pull on me. I'm your source of life. Jesus is comforted when you draw from the riches of his atoning work because his own body is getting healed. He's our head. We are his body. We belong to him. He says, pull on my great resources. Come to me. We can only live as true citizens of the gospel as we continue to pull on the endless resources of our God who loves us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you give us everything in Christ. God, will you help us to to live that out? To live as it's true? To live with a freedom and a grace because of the endless grace that you give to us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.